Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. My guest today is Paul Dyer. He's a professor of fungal biology in the Faculty of Medicine and Health Sciences. And we're going to talk about his work with fungi. So, Paul, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, tell me a bit about your uh, background and you know, how you got to this point to study fungi and everything. Yes. So I've been studying fungi for, worrying to say, over 30 years now. I guess I was really fascinated by them as a kid growing up. You know, you saw the diversity of mushrooms and various molds growing in nature, and I'd always had an interest in them. I then did studied microbiology at university and really found that the fungi was so important in so many ways for things like ecology, industry, medicine, etc. So I really then focused in on them as my topic of study. And since being a fungi working on them, um, you get to realize quite how important they are in nature as the function, but also the many benefits that they can bring to humankind as well. And it's really looking at the two sides of them that uh, got me interested. Okay. What kind of interesting things have you studied in the fungi world up to this point? I think I want to ask you about what you're working on right now, but any past projects that were really interesting and revealing to you? Yeah. So I suppose overall, I'm really interested in both the good fungi and the bad fungi because you get some very beneficial ones, both for ecology, medicine, etc., and food. But then you also get some bad fungi from a human perspective that cause things like animal and plant diseases that we want to try and control. So those two areas throughout my career, one little picture just to pick up on the past, for instance, I was lucky enough to work in the Antarctic 15 years ago now. And so I spent almost a year in the Antarctic looking at some lichen fungi, which grow down there. And we were using them a bit as ecological indicators of climate change, UV damage, etc. And got some very interesting things out of that. Also in the past, have been looking at things like some particular diseases caused by fungi. And what we've found, for example, is that some of them sexually reproduce on crops that are left after harvest. And that can spread both spread the disease and contribute to increased diversity of the pathogen, which is bad. So we managed to devise some ways to try and overcome that by, for instance, plowing the crops back into the soil to stop the fungal diseases. No doubt we'll come to talk about what I'm working on at the moment shortly. So, you know, that's a little bit of a past look back. Okay. What are some fungal diseases? Like, I know it's weird. Uh, fungi, I guess to some people seem like a disease develops. You know, they grow when things are molding and rotting. And sometimes it's like, well, you know, they look disgusting. But I would think that it's weird. People think that fungi is a disease itself, but what does a fungal disease look like? Yes, obviously I'm a big porter of the fungal kingdom, so I'll tr- I try and push the positive sides, which we'll I guess we'll talk about in due course. But on the disease side, they cause really some quite devastating plant diseases to start with. So you think about things like the mildews, 
and the rust and even things like there's a disease called banana sagatoka disease which is devastating banana populations around the world and a problem there is that the bananas are genetically very uniform very clonal so the cavendish variety is gradually being killed off worldwide as the fungus spreads and in terms of the plant diseases what you'll see are these nasty blotches and growths on the plant that stop, you know, the fruit developing, stop the uh, leaves functioning properly. So that the plant disease, we also get a limited number of animal and human diseases. So as a whole, these are really quite small proportion of the fungal kingdom, but where they do occur, they can be very serious. So from a human perspective, the most common ones are probably things like candida, which is a yeast causing thrush and various other oral infections. And there you would see it as a sort of creamy yeast growth. You've also got what we call the filamentous fungi that produce their mycelium and grow. And there are some diseases, for example, that grow in the lungs. There's one called aspergillosis that I work on in particular. But there's also diseases such as cryptococcidioides, which grow in your lung and can cause life-threatening injuries. And then you've got things like athlete's foot, where you've got superficial growth of the fungus not only on people's feet, but you can get them causing uh, growths on your fingers. Also, you get fungus causing things like dandruff. So that's human one, but then they're easy to overlook. But there are a series of very important animal diseases. So many of the mammals are susceptible to the same diseases we have. But just over the past probably 10 to 15 years, we've seen the emergence of a disease called chytridiomycosis, which is absolutely devastating amphibian populations, particularly frogs and salamanders. And it's estimated that that's now killed approximately a quarter to a third of frogs worldwide in the past 15 years. It really is, you know, have you seen the film, uh, the TV series, The Last of Us, you know, with that scary fungus causing disease. But there really are some diseases out there Perhaps due to climate change, we're not sure that have emerged and are causing problems. And as well, there's one called white nose disease of bats that's appeared in the, particularly the, the western, U, eastern west USA, where we're seeing that it's beginning to spread through natural bat populations, growing as mycelium, particularly visible on the noses, hence the white nose name. And again, that is devastating populations. So, Well, good question. Do fungi themselves get diseases? Yes, sort of. So you can get what are called mycoviruses, which are viruses of fungi. So in the same way we get viruses, bacteria get viruses, the fungi have these mycoviruses. I should say they are relatively poorly understood at the moment and probably difficult to say, but they can affect the biology of some fungi. But as far as we're aware, they're not don't have too big an impact in nature. Bacteria that can attack fungi, does that, does that exist? Not to the same extent. I mean, I'm struggling to think of some examples, not to say there aren't any out there. You know, it might just be I'm not familiar with them. But I think perhaps bacteria, they certainly compete in natural systems with fungi. So in things like soil microcosms, breakdown, you do get bacteria and fungi competing together. And interestingly, that's thought to be one reason why fungi produce antibiotics such as penicillin, penicillin, you know, to kill off the bacteria. 
Um, I think the bigger threat, arguably, though, is you do get some parasitic fungi that grow on other fungi. So there is a bit of warfare even amongst the fungal kingdom where you do get these parasitic fungi that will interact with and kill and grow on other fungi. Even things like lichens, they have fungi called lichenicolous fungi that grow on them as parasites. Yeah, it's weird that uh, fungi don't really seem to have you know, very few to any diseases. And they don't seem to be susceptible to bacterial attack nearly as much as other creatures. It's weird. Yes, I think that partly relates to the fungal lifestyle, though, in that when we think of things like plant animals, you know, we are fairly long-lived organisms. So we are exposed to them for, you know, months, if not years. Whereas the fungi are quite ephemeral. or It's a bit of a sweeping generalization, but they are quite ephemeral. So the mycelium is constantly growing and dying. So... Rarely do you get a long-lived fungal structure that might be uh, vulnerable to attack. Yeah, I guess there are some basic questions about fungi, like what constitutes a fungal organism? You know, you have these hyphae that sometimes go over long distances and all that, but I don't know, is, is a fungus one entity with one mind, I guess you can call it? You know, do all the cells and all the hyphae that constitute a, a fungal body act in unison, or do they seem to be segmented somehow? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that there is tremendous diversity in the fungal kingdom. So at one end, you have got single-celled fungi. So yeast, for example, a fungi, and they just grow as single cells that bud and yeast uh, bud and divide to produce more yeasts. And obviously, they're important for things like alcohol and bread production. You've also got some what we call basal fungi, which are thought to be the uh, sort of simplest early examples of them. Uh, called Chytridomyces, and those, again, are single-celled ones that have the gel and allow them to swim around. But you then do get the more complex mycelium-forming fungi. And uh, one, I suppose at their smallest thing, you may be familiar with things like your bread mould or your mould on a, an apple or such like, where you do see a fungal organism growing there. It's normally pretty much genetically the same. So you could say it is one fungal individual on your plant or your bread example, and that will spread. You know, you can get fungal growth five to 10 centimeters and you can grow them on Petri dishes, you know, quite rapidly. At the other extreme, though, there are some very long lived organisms. And I don't know if you're aware of a fungus called the humongous fungus. Uh, we do like our names in the fungal world. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. There is one in Oregon that goes over like thousands of miles or something. Right? That's the one, yes. Yeah, so it's quite extraordinary. So it's thought to be by area the largest organism in the world. And I think it's it's something like I think I think it's something like the same size as several thousand football pitches, you know, and it got this vast area in Oregon. And it seems 
the organism might be, you know, between two and 3,000 years old. So it started growing as a small mycelium, but it's basically spread through the forest floor. And it is a tree pathogen, so it's getting its energy from trees. And it's then spread over this whole area. And there has been some DNA tests on it, and it does seem to be pretty much genetically uniform. There are some uh, variations in there, but that you would call a single organism. So there you've got this huge fungal organism where does control come from like you know if i have um, a fungus that say it's a 10 centimeter circle or something like that is there a brain or there organs where does the control come from is it lately distributed like i think conventionally it, the argument would be is that there isn't really a single controlling it's all local growth so in the fungal mycelium you just they basically respond to the growth conditions around them and probably you only get feedback over a relatively short distance of maybe five, 10 centimetres maximum. So there isn't, you know, a, like a single controlling mind, as it were. But so it's local feedback just with the nuclei and the mycelium. And there might be some hormonal signaling going on there. Are there different segments? Like, you know, this part of the mycelium uh, has a structure that looks like an organ. And this part of the mycelium, this other part is different. For most fungi, the answer is not really. They just have a simple, the same, a similar mycelial structure throughout. So, for example, if you think that if your thilium will be familiar with fairy ring mushrooms that form these rings over several years, and if you look at the soil, you, you see what looks like a ring which gradually expands over a series of years. So the mycelium there is a very simple mycelium just spreading out, all part arguably of the same individual. Uh, the only way that you do get some specialization really is when they sexually reproduce. And it might come as a bit of a surprise, but the mushrooms, in the case of that group of fungi, they are the sexual organs of the species. So when you see a mushroom or toadstool, it's what you get the mycelium undergoing developmental changes to produce this three-dimensional structure, the, the mushroom or toadstool, from which you then get spores release. And there are some cases in some fungal species where they do produce specialised organs for really dispersal. So there's one called, for instance, the honey mushroom, that rather than just having simple feathery mycelium, they can all clump together to form what almost look like boot laces. They're called rhizomorts, which can then spread the fungus. Sounds like, I guess, a fungi are a collection of, you know, similar cell-like structures. And then depending on probably external signaling and maybe um, signaling within this collective, then certain structures will differentiate for a time and perform a function. Like, will they go back to being generic type cells or once they differentiate and form a you know, like you said, sexual organs or whatever, uh, do they stay that way? You know, are fungi like blobs in a way and you know, that they get foreign structures as they need? As I say, they are ephemeral. So these are structures that are formed, but then decay and come apart. So the one people that probably could be most familiar with are the mushrooms and toadstools. So for example, when you see a toadstool forming, it develops and it disperses its spores. But once the dispersal's finished, it will then simply, the mycelium and it will decay and die away. So it's not really then changing back the original fungus. Instead, it's the spores that come out of the mushroom or toadstool that then disperse. And when they germinate, that's when you then get the same fungus then re-establishing itself and growing again as new mycelium that's dispersed. 
And again, if you think of something like a petri, you know, something growing in a petri dish, it starts off in the middle. And if you leave it for long enough, you tend to find that the central sections will begin to decay away, leaving only the living sections towards the edge of the dish. Well, what happens if I have a petri dish and I put like two different uh, fungal colonies on there, like, you know, a centimeter apart? As they, uh, as they grow towards each other, do they emerge to become one organism or do they retain some kind of uh, separate identity somehow? It depends how closely related they are to start with. If they are, you know, from the same original fungus to start with, often, but not always, the two can merge to form a new, you know, super fungus, you know, the two brought together and the individual hyphae can fuse together to form a new individual. And there's some lab species such as Neurospora that does that very well. However, if they are different in either different individuals of the same species or even different species, normally where you get two meeting, they will not merge. And instead, you can get some competition between them. And sometimes the better growing, the faster one will overgrow the other one and take over the whole plate. Or sometimes you get these what are called incompatibility zones. And a nice example of that is if you look at things like gravestones and the growth of lichens on gravestones and even things like roof tiles, you see these lovely, beautiful crisscross patterns where the lichens are meeting, but then you get a distinct black line between them where you've got this incompatibility reaction that stops them growing over each other. What if you have a circle with the hole cut out in the middle and you put you know, fungus in it and it starts to grow around the circle and eventually it'll meet itself. What would happen then? Nice idea for an experiment. Never tried that. I think, again, it, it would depend partly on how closely related it was. So if it was the same fungus growing round in a ring and eventually meeting itself again, many species like Neurospora could then merge together, you know, just to reestablish itself as the same individual organism. But there are some other species that seem very they don't like merging very much i work on a group called aspergillus for example where even if you take the same aspergillus colony and then grow it with another part of the same colony they don't like merging very much but thinking about you know like a human you know we're all individuals i think the fungi out there you can think of them as growing clones of a fungus so you can get multiple clones of the same fungus growing on say different parts of a tree different parts of a leaf and provided they're from the same original clone they then may fuse together to form a new individual but based on the same genetic properties but do you think there's a lot of worm sensing going on like if i have a billion hyphae that constitute an organism how does it know where to go how does it know to expend resources or maybe channel or shunt resources to one part of the fungus versus the other like uh, it must be i guess ongoing communication amongst all the cells and some kind of consensus signaling i would guess there's actually been some nice work done by someone called lynn body at the university of cardiff where she's got some species that have really visible fund mycelium that you can follow their growth and they've grown them on various substrates and for instance put some wood which is the thing that they grow on you know, at certain points around a, a very large petri dish. And what you can see is that the fungus sort of wiggles in a sort of exploratory way. And then one of the hyphae then hits the wood, which is its food source. And suddenly you see the whole of the other mycelium beginning to turn towards it and grow towards it. And then it it's like, even a good example is there are things like dry rot fungi that grow in 
in homes, you know, and can cause things like damage to things like wooden supports and struts in the home. What you find is they have this exploratory growth on walls looking for a, a good food substrate, then run into a nice bit of timber. Suddenly the whole fungus starts growing towards it and engulfs it and it then sits and will explore and fully digest that. And then once that's done, it then sends out these exploratory hyphae again, looking for a suitable nutrient source. Again, I'm thinking of The Lost of Us. Have you seen that TV? I've heard about it. I haven't seen it. Interesting. What if you put a, uh, you had a long, narrow channel, say a foot long or a meter long, and you grew a fungus and, you know, it grew all along the channel. So you have like this, you know, one meter long, you know, really narrow fungus. And on one end, you've either increased the temperature or pH or you put a nutrient source or whatever it is. How fast do you think that signal would propagate to the other end? You know, what if you put two uh, competing food sources and the fungus can sense it and grow towards them and then you see which hyphae wins? You know, let's say the left one wins by like a second or so. You know, would the right stop sticking and the whole fungus immediately starts going towards the left? Has anyone tried something like that to see how far the signals travel and how fast? Yeah, to be honest, I'm not exactly sure. Um, I think there are different growth rates of different species. So you can get some very fast growing ones, for instance, like this Neurospora bread mold I mentioned that's used as a lab model. And that has a growth rate of roughly one or two millimeters an hour, which for fun in fungal terms is really quite fast. So there you might imagine you've got some quite fast signaling going on, whereas you get some other fungi such as the lichens that might only grow one or two centimeters they're going to have a you know a bit of a slower response i think in the scenario you just said about this long tube what you've got to remember is most of the fungal activity is in the growing part of the fungus so maybe in the front certainly in the front few centimeters but maybe in the front five to ten centimeters maximum beyond that you tend to find that the mycelium isn't actively growing and you might get some vegetative spores formed in there you know so it becomes like dormant resting mycelium so that sort of length i don't think you probably get much signaling beyond maybe 10 to 20 centimeters i'd say to guess so if you had then introduced a new source at the other end i think it would be basically the resting parts of the mycelium would be reactivated to use it but it would probably be too far away from the other one to pass a message down that said, there has been some work looking at things like the role of electric currents in fungi, and there is some evidence that they are using electrical currents to send signals. And over the past 10 years, there has been the concept of the so-called wood wide web. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah, that it connects, you know, fungus uh, connects trees and performs signaling possibly trees. That's right. So there are thought to be these networks, particularly in things like woodlands connecting trees, but other plants as well. And it's, you know, they may have some signaling over lengths, you know, tens of centimeters. And there is some speculation they may be more than meters. But I think those networks are maybe unusual in that you do get living mycelium retained for a long period. Yeah, maybe I'll do like the mycelium X games and have them like you know, grow towards stuff and see who wins and weird they grow into it all. You might want well, that's photography. It'd be interesting. What's the best way for people to find out more about your work with fungi? Where can they go? Uh, so if you look up, I work at the University of Nottingham. So if you look up the University of Nottingham pool dar, I've got a website there. 
And also there's a lot of things about the beneficial side of fungi, which we haven't really had a chance to talk about today, but like a use in food production, antibiotic production. So there's a lot of good things that fungi do as well, which I'd encourage people to have a look. Well, very good, Paul. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks. Very good to speak to you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.